You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, a very, very famous figure in New Zealand history. Te Rauparaha, what a famous name. And this is actually one of the biggest migrations, internal migrations in New Zealand. That might come as a surprise, thinking that it was him and his warring party only that was going around the country. For all the details and this whole story, Jared Hindmarsh, g'day. G'day, Graham. Well, this is a very dramatic story, I have to say, of the Great Heka, or Migration. Now, this is of the Kafia tribes south to Kapiti Coast. That's a thousand kilometres, and this great exodus of people from Waikato to the Kapiti Coast in 1821. And, of course, it was under the leadership of Terapraha, of course, the wily, shrewd, absolute great military genius he really was. But, you know, it's sort of topical today, Graham. We're getting a sense of people moving in the world. You know, people have always had to move for various reasons for their safety, and they often do it en masse. We have it today with the Rohingya people going from Burma into Bangladesh, Cox's Bazaar, a million people now congregating. It with the aim of finding a new home. And then we have the Syrian Kurds in Turkey. Some of their camps are nearly as big and the North Africans swarming into Europe. And we always think of migrations with New Zealand, people coming here, but there actually was a huge internal migration and it totally reordered the tribal structure of New Zealand. And it was at a time, 1821, when Europeans were only just starting to come here. This is a story, it's all about Tarapraha, of course, seeing that he needed to have a safe place for his people. But he also realised that it wasn't enough to be a vicious warrior anymore. You had to have guns too. And Kafia was a place along the coast of Waikato. It was a great harbour. It's about a 600 hectare harbour, about 40 kilometres southwest of Hamilton now. But back then, it was a great food source. It had great pippies, it had cockles, mussels. It's a great place to live around. And this is where Tarapraha and his tribe lived around. But it didn't attract Europeans. It had navigational issues. And Tarapraha was very quick to know that they had to move down south if they were to consolidate their power. What sort of man was Tarapraha? It was amazing that he actually came into power as the undisputed chief of his tribe because he was the fifth son of a second son of a chief. So the most he could ever have hoped for was that most people thought was that he could only be a rangatira, someone of chiefly rank. But it was just his incredible aggressive defence of his tribe's interest and his skill in battle that he became this natural leader. You know, in profile, he wasn't much taller than five foot, of course, just a tiny man, but 
He had great muscular strength. He was well muscled and he was described as having aquiline features. And when excited, they they say his eyes would gleam, his pupils would dilate and you could almost, light was coming out of his eyes and his lower lip would curl downwards. He wasn't a man to mess with at all. He sounds typically charismatic. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I suppose I'm trying to paint that picture. But interestingly, his name was derived from an edible plant called Rapraha. It's one of the New Zealand convolvulus families, actually, or uh, Pohi, some Maori call it. But soon after he was born, a Waikato warrior who had killed and eaten a relation of his threatened to eat the child when he was born as well. And he said, I'm going to roast him with Rapraha leaves. So Tarapraha was called his name in defiance of this threat. So, you know, you can see the sort of life he was born into. Yeah. So what was his tribe? Ngāti Toa. The Ngāti Toa, they weren't huge in numbers, but they were well known. They were a tribe with prestige and great warriors and great tradition of battle. But it was a time when there was civil war erupting amongst the Maori tribes, reorganising for power. Tarapraha was very wide-ranging. He, he went north, he went south, he went right down to the bottom of the South Island as well. And in 1819, he did a recce, if you like, of the fertile, and thinly populated coastal land around the Kapiti area. Now, it was a place where the white man's ships were already calling and it was a jumping off point for the Greenstone as well from the South Island. So it was the perfect place to inhabit and hardly anyone was there. And this made him want to establish a full-scale migration of epic proportions that the country had never seen before. What was wrong with Kafia? It's nice, you can catch a fish or two. Yeah, but they were being harassed, Graham, and the tribes from north were forming alliances with the tribes further north and Napui and stuff, and they were coming down and basically treating Kafia as their breadbasket, and there were constant skirmishes, and this is where Tarapraha became well known for his leadership, which gave him the mana and the people to be a natural leader. He led expeditions where he killed chiefs. He even launched massive war canoe attacks. Mostly he was very, very successful, but... As the tribes retaliated against him, he realised that his number was up and the only way that they were going to get guns like the northern tribes to go down south and to get the muskets from the white ship captains and stuff that came in. Now, it's interesting. What did they trade for a musket? One musket was worth one ton of mukka, which is the inner soft fabric of the flax. Now, if you've ever got a mussel shell, Graham, and scraped a leaf of flax, eventually, after quite a while, you get this mukka forming. The chlorophyll is scraped off with the mussel shell, and you're just left with this beautiful white fibre. Well, a ton of that is basically a big sheep bale pressed like that, as tough as you can get. And this was some of our first real currency besides whale oil. And one ton of mukka you could trade for one musket was the going rate. Mm. Tarapraha was guilty, like all the other chiefs too, who uh, traded for muskets, of getting his woman to do this mukka work. And they would sit round and just make mountains of mukka out of flax wherever they went. 
and this would be traded for muskets. And, you know, it was sort of like one of our first strikes, Graham. The woman started to get pissed off with being used. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and so the trade moved into production more by slaves. It was quite interesting. Mm. And as the woman pulled back and said, we're not going to do this man's work anymore just so you can buy guns, you know. But it's just one of those classic sort of struggles. Gosh, the advent of muskets into New Zealand, that's changed so many things. And, you know, just ahead of Taropiraha, he was actually part of the Ngāpui invasion that went up and down the country. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's amazing the dispossessedness that happened during that time of these oh. tribes. It really was. And it makes a lot of the Waitangi Tribunal work very, very difficult because you've got tribal affiliations within Ngāpui area of people that are descended from the slaves that they took. Oh, exactly, Graham. So you think of Ngāpui, and it's not all just Ngāpui. There are all these things to take into account. What a freaking mess, actually. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But anyway, to Rāpurahe, he was a consummate diplomat as well, but he persuaded his people that the time had come to move. And this was in a meeting, 1,500 people. Can you imagine it? Mm. All standing before him. He gets up, you know, and says, we're only a small tribe, our influence is huge, but we're no match for the combined forces of the Waikato and the Ngāti Maniapoto. We're hundreds matched against thousands, and the Waikato tribes were now just coming into Kafia and taking whatever they wanted. But they didn't seem to want to destroy the Ngāti Toa, but Tarapraha just wasn't going to have it, you know. Yeah, so this is more like a, a fighting retreat. Yeah, and they suffered quite a few defeats and sieges. And finally, they were restricted to their last pa, which is Tiarawi. Now, they had a big skirmish, and for some sort of complex motive, the attacking forces withdrew and allowing them to escape. You could never work out some of these battles, you know, what was trying to do. But anyway, they had another huge meeting, about 16 kilometres from um, Kafia. Again, 1,500 men, women and children. Now from the Ngāti Toa, Ngāti Kauata, Ngāti Rarua and some other Kafia tribes and they all sat down to plan their future and this is where Tarapraha made his biggest plea, he got up. Now at the time he was covered in an outbreak of boils and he looked hideous and he stood amongst the people and he told them of his dream, you know, such was his mana and such was his strength and confidence radiating from this figure that no one questioned him and there was only a couple of Hapu sub-tribes with connections to the Waikato that didn't agree to join this migration. There were only a few people with family connections that held back, that was it. It was just overwhelming for him and a hickey the word means to disembark but used as a noun it means a great migration and this was going to be the migration that New Zealand had never seen before right hickey one up from a hickoy exactly all right this fighting retreat did change the landscape of the map of tribal affiliations around the country it's amazing we have the story because not a lot of people were writing stuff down. There's oral history, though. Okay. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Today, the story of one of the most famous names in New Zealand history, Taropiraha. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Today, 
the famous name Te Rauparaha, uh, this big migration, a fighting retreat for Ngāti Toa. He sounds like an absolutely charismatic man. For his name to resonate and be like a household name to most New Zealanders, I think reflects that as well. Oh, absolutely. A man with huge charisma that could galvanise everyone around him, particularly the young warriors. They just loved him. They would be at his bidding. And he was the staunchest of them all, the bravest of them all, always out the front. So, you know, a natural leader. Now, Tarapraha knew that this migration had to be on foot. Well, first of all, there were over a thousand of them, and they had hardly any seagoing canoes. Now, that while I'd been discussing this, a party of Nati Maniapoto warriors planned to intercept them once they got going, but they decided that the time was up, they had to leave, and a thousand people gathered together with food and children, even disabled older people came with them. And on that first day, they walked about 20 kilometres to the Maracopo River and the uh, Pukiroa Pa. Now, it became obvious to them that to get through to their Ngāti Tama allies in Taranaki, many of the women and children would have to be left at a safe place. It was dawning on them pretty quick that having so many people who couldn't fight with them was a great liability. But anyway, they left the women and children under the auspices of a friendly chief and they travelled down to the Awakino River where it emerged near the shore now. Living off the land and seashore, they trekked further south and they stopped briefly at the Ngāti Rarua coastal pa there. We should tell people, uh, not everybody knows, the Awakino River, or quite a few miles north of New Plymouth, but uh, along that little bight. Yeah, that's right, and Waikawao is the place, actually, where the pa was. Mm-hmm. And the chief there warned to Rapraha that a force of his kinsmen, who weren't so friendly, were following the heka, and they wanted to cut off all avenues of escape. Basically, they were being chased. Now, heeding the warning to Rapraha, he led his band of men south to the Mokau River, where they crossed on makeshift rafts. And it was quite dangerous, actually. One raft capsized, and the only child of his greatest lieutenant, that was Turangihai. He was drowned. The little boy was drowned. It was a little tragedy, actually. But anyway, on the south side of the river, they were welcomed by their Nati Tama friends, and they were escorted further south into the territory of the Nix tribe, which is the Nati Matunga. Here they hoped to sort of rest and grow food and plan the next phase of the march. So they actually had to put in crops, Graham. It was a kind of extended affair. Well... Since Alexander the Great and probably people ahead of him, uh, he said an army, I think it was him, marches on its stomach. Yeah, that's right. You've got to eat. You've got to supply. It's the supply that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's If you're right. hungry, you don't want to, f- well, you might want to fight, but you're not going to be very good at it. No. And they settled in at Tikaweka, and that was a few miles north of the uh, Uranui River there. And Tarapraha now, he felt like he had to go and get the rest of the women and children left behind, and he set off for Kafia. Now, he took only a few men with him. Some say it was as low as four, but possibly as many as a dozen. Most didn't want to go with him on the mission because as leader of the Heke, he was indispensable, and this was one of the most dangerous missions 
conditions to retrieve the woman and children. However, he made it back and he managed to bring all the women and children left behind back with him. Now, amongst them had been several injured warriors from skirmishes and they had recovered and they boosted his escort to about 20 fighting men. And they had the advantage that they were all armed with muskets. And this had been a gift from the Napui tribe at the end of the Great Expedition of 1819. That was the one that Taraparaha was on. Yeah, exactly. He'd come back with about 20-odd guns, which was their entire armoury, basically. It doesn't sound much, but it's a lot when the others don't have any. Yeah, and there were hardly any around the Taranaki coast because ships just didn't call in there as much. It was where the whalers, where ships anchored for days and days. That's when the bartering for guns would begin. Now, the next 56-kilometre trek to the Mokau was a sort of slow journey, and there were women carrying babies and toddlers, and they had to make frequent stops for rests and forages to feed people. And Tarapaha was aware at this time of the vulnerability of the women and children, so before they left, he started a rumour been a master of deception and stealth, that a group of Napui armed with guns were roaming the area looking for them. What he did was a hope that his enemies would actually think that there was another band out for them. And what he did was he, he dressed uh, many of the able-bodied women in red chieftain cloaks, which was how the Napui would be attacking them. And believing that they were the party that they'd heard of, the Nati Maniapoto war party, they moved inland away from them, thinking that they were going to clash with another tribe too. This was a sort of stealth he engaged in. And in battles, he would often put these cloaks around bushes and stuff and make it look like there were huge numbers. At night, he would organise his men with great oratories, thinking it was a huge meeting, and there'd be many people speaking, and they'd be all singing and clapping in unison, but in a certain way to make it sound like huge numbers of people. Right, right. That's a classic deception in wartime. And even the occasional uh, Soviet military parade, they just went round the block and came back to make it look as though they had more than they had. Yeah. And further on, it was another party intercepted him. This time it was led by uh, Tutakaro. Now, he had a 100 warriors and he was prepared to attack them. But again, Tarapraha outwitted him and he said uh, he dressed as women as chiefs and had them hidden in reserve behind the warriors and Tarapraha and his 20 men engaged them, a hundred warriors, and they they just laid into them and they killed Tutakaro, the chief. It was absolutely amazing. And disguised woman, they burst from their hiding places. They were brandishing weapons too. And the enemy, uh, Nati Maniapoto, they retreated to await more men. But just a few kilometres lay the Mokau and safety for Tarapraha and his thousand followers. It was incredible. All in enemy territory. Now they trekked on through the afternoon and just before dark they broke out of the bush onto the banks of the river mouth of the Mokau there. Now the enemies were not far behind them and ahead stretched the waters which had been boosted by a sort of high tide. There was no way across until the tide went down. Tarapraha arranged a superb deception at this point. He lit heaps of campfires and women, children and bushes were draped with chieftain's cloak 
bricks again, just bits of material, and with much noise and manoeuvring, they deceived the invading force, believing that they were facing this huge party. So they managed to get the attack delayed, and by this time, all the warriors were assembling, because they would travel, Graham, with half the warriors in the front and half the warriors behind, with them moving back and forth as well. It was a big protection group, the way they moved. It was very strategic, and they wouldn't all expose themselves at once. And now at midnight, they crossed on the ebb tide, and they now were in Nati Tama territory to mark this grand deception of the first phase of the hickey. It was called the migrants who lit fires, or te hickey tahu tahu ahi. They'd deceived people with these fires, and it was a kind of a new trick of Tarapraha. It was really fantastic, actually. Now, it was a very mixed bunch as they came down the Taranaki, uh, the southern Taranaki coast. Some tribes were hostile, some weren't. They stopped at various paths. Some were traditional foes, some were allies, and the Heki received a very unfriendly reception at many points, but Tarapraha standing at the front was sufficient to restrain the younger chiefs who regarded the lack of welcome as an insult. Tarapra held them back and he said he had no intention of fighting his way south and Nati Tower were forbidding even to plunder food which was in short supply. He would assure everybody. Now it was really only the presence of their 20 guns which gave them passage in a way. There were some tribes that were entirely resistant to them. But Tarapraha was aware of the vulnerability. I mean, there were mothers with infants in arms. There were children, elderly, as I said, disabled people. And they were also now carrying slaves, carrying goods and valuables as well. They had slave porters. Now, Tarapraha uh, couldn't afford a battle, and he knew that, despite the fact that an advanced guard of about 70 armed Ngāti Toa warriors led the hike, while the rest was similar protected as well but they were in the middle of winter now and the feeding of 2,000 there were 2,000 people people were joining them and there were 2,000 people just feeding them in the middle of winter became a huge problem and stops were frequent as they dug fern root and they gathered karaka berries and they collected power by midwinter the people had arrived at a pa at Finiakua River where they waited for spring. They had to regroup themselves, but now ahead lay the territory of the Nati Ranui and the Nati Raru. Now, Tarapraha sent words of peace and requests for food, and all remained peaceful until they settled briefly at a pa called Ihupuku. Now, this is overlooking the Waitotra River, Tarapraha sent a group ahead to Waitotra to remind the locals of their ties of kinship in the past. Now, four of that group were killed for going in with the message, and some escaped. Now, Tarapraha went into one of his absolute furies, and he knew now he had no choice but to demonstrate that the Hiki could not be attacked at will. And as a result, they just took that par and a lot of the locals were killed and the canoes were all captured. 
he wasn't straight up with just marching through. He sent messages, but this was a total violation that his messengers be slaughtered. They rested at Waitotra. Another advanced party of Ngāti Apa arrived to greet them and escort them south to the Manawatu River. They weren't far off now, but they still had a lot of tribal politics to go before they could get past. Right. And if anyone needs reminding, uh, Te Rauparaha, or listeners overseas may be interested, Te Rauparaha, the origin of the most famous haka that is heard, is his, Kamate. So I'm sure we'll get to that story as well. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Don't go anywhere. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The story of Tiroparaha, the man behind the famous, most famous haka. If you're listening overseas, uh, you may be familiar with the haka that the uh, national rugby team does, otherwise known as the All Blacks, has done. They've got more than one. But anyway, the most famous one. It was constructed, written in a time of conflict by this man, Tarapuraha. So this is the story behind him and it. Jared, we've got this migration, a fighting migration. It's not beer and skittles. They're making their way and trying to feed the thousands as well. The Ngāti Toa group, a fighting retreat from Kafia, and they're going down the west coast of the North Island. And, of course, getting close to Kapiti, which is a, a, a famous place for Tarapuraha. Yeah, and 1,000 kilometres roughly, with 2,000 people in tow now. It wasn't just a continual thing. They settled, they grew crops, always scrounging for food wherever they could, and uh, not trying to step on other tribes' toes, but not scared if they did. If they'd been aware of a meeting on Kapiti Island about this time, those in the Heki would not have been in such a buoyant spirit, actually, because 100 chiefs had gathered on the island to plot against the migration. They were fearful of this man coming down called Tarapraha. His reputation preceded him and there was a huge uprising against him. This is a lot of different tribes all banding together. Yeah, Ngāti Apa, that was um, Kapiti and uh, Rangatike, and the uh, Maiapoko, that was the Horofanua, and the Rangatane and the Manawatu, they all started to join forces. For them, it could only look bad, I would have to say. Anyway, the Heke had moved south to Rangatike, and with a huge um, new large party of friends, there were even marriages, intertribal marriages now were happening, and they were welcomed, and they stayed for a few months at Oroa to grow some food. Now, anxious to get his people south to their new lands, Tarapraha led them through the 40 kilometres to the Manawatu River. Before they left, some Ngāti Apa warned the Heke not to anger their allies because they were waiting for them, the Rangatani and the Maapoko. Now, once the Heke reached the Manawatu, their first concern was food. A foraging party led by Tarapraha's half-brother had their canoes stolen when they left to seek food up the river and they searched and searched for these canoes, couldn't find them, and they searched for the culprits too. Now, the angry men, they were just furious about this. Tarapraha's men vented their frustration by killing and eating a woman in a Rangatani village that they came across. Now, unfortunately, Graham, she was of high rank. This provided the excuse now for the Kapiti plotters to kill Tarapraha. Now, this was an elaborate 
plot. A senior Mayapoko chief, Tahere Riri, he invited the Heke to settle near the Waikawa River. Now, this was a ploy, and they erected a bit of a par in the bend of the river, and it was the Heke's first in the south, actually. Now, Tarapraha was invited to join a feast of eels in honour with the chiefs. He disregarded warnings from his nephew, his nephew had sensed an evil omen, but Tarapraha went almost defenceless to the feast. It was amazing, and he had a party of only 20 people, virtually unarmed, accompanying him. It was something he never did. He fell for this. Anyway, feasting continued for several days, while a war party of about 800 slowly assembled on the fringes to kill the Ngāti Toa chief and his followers. And they attacked at midnight. Now, Tarapraha and one other, Tiraka Hiraya, now he escaped and they were both humiliated at how easily they had been trapped and Tarapraha lost his oldest son, his successor and his oldest daughter and two other children. They were all killed in that attack that night. Mm. Now, the Moapoko now had opted for war, and Tarapraha was swift. Gone was any sort of diplomatic endeavouring to settle its um, people peacefully on new lands, and he rose up with the absolute destruction on his mind, and many stories have been documented about what happened, but he just went on an absolute bloodbath with local tribes, and Basically, it slowed him down. He was so incessant and thorough how he went about avenging this. Basically, he had wiped out the opposition in one go. And now he was the undisputed leader in this area as well. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, this migration, a fighting migration into tribal warfare, start of the musket wars, Taraparaha, a very famous name in New Zealand history, the man behind, our most famous, well, well known. Anyway, yeah, that, that's what famous means. Haka, kamate, kamate, kaora, kaora. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Today, the story of Taraparaha, and, well, at least this great migration, a fighting retreat, uh, a lot of bloodshed and military manoeuvres up and down the west coast of the North Island. Uh, it goes further than that, though, and this is quite a thing in New Zealand history. We're talking around about the 18, well, early 1820s. Jared, they're um, just about down there to his famous haunt of Carpety. Yeah, and he was basically in the promised land now, and he'd exerted his muscle, and he spent many months going round finding any Maopoko people he could, and some accounts say he harried them, other people said he just slaughtered them. Tribes were drawn into the conflict, and eventually there was one marriage between Rangiaeta and Te Pinga, which sort of settled peace for a while, because she was Ngāti Tiapa, and they somehow called a truce over that. But man, much more people would have been slaughtered. Now, Tarapraha decided that they needed a very secure base in the new lands. They couldn't just be spread out along the coast, and all the time he looked out to Kapiti Island. Now, the problem was how to take it. He wanted it now. It was six kilometres off the 
Waikanae coast. It was protected by sea and cliffs. It could be defended just by a few people. It was perfect, and it was going to be his. They weren't large in number, though. They were well outnumbered by the warriors that could rise up on Kapiti itself. But they developed a strategy whereby they thought they could take it. Now, the Nati Toa, they began preparations for a large raid on the Moapopo and Orangutani in the Horofanua. Now, uh, just for people who um, just need reminding, Ngāti Toa, that is Ropraha's outfit. Yeah, undisputed chief of the Nati Toa. Now, he made very elaborate and obviously upfront preparations for this large raid on the Moapoko and the Rangatani and the Horofanua. And these are people that he had almost defeated, but there were still more of them up there. He kept telling everyone he was going to get them. And Taraparaha and the Nati Toa, they began preparations for a large raid in the Horofanua. This is on their former enemies that they'd beaten, but they were determined. He made it known he was determined to get the rest of them. He left Waikanae with much fanfare for the Horofanua, saying they were going to attack. Of course, word would have gone ahead of him, and they were ready for it. But that night, his son, Tapaki Kupe, paddled secretly to Kapiti with a small band of Ngāti Toa and it caught the defenders by surprise because they had heard that Taraparaha and his men had gone north. They weren't ready to be attacked. They were totally taken by surprise. There were many men killed and others escaped with their families into the forest and swamp, but they were all hunted down. And the very next morning, Taraparaha turned around with his men. He had no intention of going north to fight. That had been his great diversion. And they paddled across from Waikanae to Kapiti to take the island and to establish their territory there. It was right of conquest. And Taraparaha had won again with a great deception. Right. Yeah, quite the general. Yeah, and the great heke was over and the Ngāti Toa people had found a new home and over the next few years, whalers and European ships began trading at Kapiti with great frequency. By 1827, there were ships coming most days and Taraprahar's power over his alloyed tribes rested on the control of the trade and arms and ammunition. He had the entire trade. Everything had to go through him. They bought many captives to Kapiti as well to scrape the flax and they were traded for muskets, powder and tobacco and he also controlled the entire supply of greenstone from the South Island because it came through Kapiti so he had scored this amazing victory in a way, located nearly 2,000 people, 1,000 kilometres and come out with all these opposing tribes and vanquished the whole lot of them yeah, he had to fight his way though, for the South Island access, though. That was uh, yeah. a big battle. Yeah, but by the mid-1830s, Taraprahe and his allies had conquered the whole southwest of the North Island and nearly the entire northern half of the South Island. He became very pivotal, too, in negotiations with the colony of New Zealand, too. He was a signatory on a copy of the Treaty of Waitangi, which was presented to him by the uh, missionary Henry Williams. 
and he disagreed with it immensely afterwards, saying that anything he'd previously sold or appeared to sell had not actually been true, and he said the only part he really sold was Vokatu, which is Nelson, and Titaitapu, which of course is the western coast of Golden Bay. And he went viciously in pursuit of these land rights too in the in the Wairau Plains, 1843. We've talked about this before, the Wairau affair. And at that uh, affray, they call it an affray actually, or a uh, Wairau affair, but the settlers had come from Nelson, led by Arthur Wakefield, and Tarapraha had encountered them across the river and said, I do not come to England to demand your lands. You cannot come here and get our lands that's when the shot went off from the Europeans, which started, and they were all massacred, of course. Mm. So he was extremely defiant, and settlers in the Hutt Valley particularly and in Wellington were terrified of him. And the governor, Governor Gray, he decided Tarapraha could not be trusted and must be arrested, and he actually visited him in his Taupo Pa. Now, this is where, near Porirua, and then left on the naval vessel driver, and two hours before dawn the ship returned, and the British troops took Tarapraha on board, and he was held without charge on a naval vessel, the Calliope, for ten months, and then he was allowed to live in Auckland, (laughs) away from the action. He was basically put under house arrest, but on his petition to the governor, he was returned to his people in Otaki in 1848. He lived at Otaki, really, for the for the brief remainder of his life, although he did visit Wairau uh, a couple of times, apparently, and um, his influence certainly declined in his, in his later years, probably because of the humiliation of his imprisonment, and he saw that as much from his point of view as anyone's. They say that he turned to Christian, but he didn't exactly adopt Christianity, but he did attend church services, God knows why, but Tarapraha died on the 27th of November 1849, he's buried near the church at Rangiataya, now this is near Otaki, but he, he's believed to have been almost certainly reinterred on Kapiti Island by his tribe. You know, but let's just look at what an amazing life that he had. You know, he he was one of our greatest tribal leaders and he he took his tribe from basically from being decimated at Kafia, defeated, if you like, to the conquest of new territories in central New Zealand. And as a war leader, he enjoyed the greatest success. He attributed a lot of his success to Ngāti Tawa's possession of muskets rather than to Tarapraha's to military genius, I suppose. Uh, you know, people have argued, but you can't help that without his leadership, there's no way that Ngāti Tawa would have attempted the Great Migration, seized the opportunities open to them, and, and you know, in doing so, he, he changed the entire tribal structure of New Zealand. It was just turned on its head. Yeah. And the European colonists exploited that tribal structure for the for various profits, whether it was whaling or uh, flax. Flax was a huge trade for a while during his era. There was so much demand for flax fibre. Yeah. Uh Har exploited it as well. He um, set up the whaling contacts and plenty of Maori went aboard those whalers. It was, yeah, Kapiti became quite an economic if not a hub, it was certainly on the path. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, his, the, the stories about him are almost too gruesome oh, to yeah. talk about, Graham. They're just like, he was just fierce. People feared him. He really was. And, you know, what happened, one chief, the one Rangatani chief said that, you know, I'm not afraid of Turapraha. I'll kill him with a fern root pounder if he comes here. Now, a fern root pounder is the most innocuous, blunt, handheld instrument for bashing fern. You know, it's an insult to say that. Turapraha flared up. He was so angry. He went and he he went across Cook Strait in a war canoe almost immediately and captured him, the chief who had insulted him and his wife. He brought them back to Kapiti. He cut open his wife's stomach, pulled out her innards, pegged them out and made the chief dance around for two weeks while he killed him slowly with a fern root pounder. Yeah. Now that I mean that is fierce, Graham. Yeah, that is. And and you know, no wonder that a man like this could could have such mana and such prestige. It was all about Utu mm. too, and he was not scared of ever settling Utu. It was necessary. He would just go out and do it. And the man himself, he wouldn't send men out. He'd do it himself. Yeah, successful, but um, vicious. There's no doubt about that. We haven't addressed uh, the Kamate Haka, Jared. No, we haven't, but... I actually had a, uh, a thing recently with Patricia Grace, the Takaka Library, had a good talk, but she records all that history so well in um, novelised form and stuff. I got a real feel for that whole haka tradition, and he's left the legacy of it, hasn't he, to be used on sport and everything, the way it's been used for whatever reason and whatever argument. It's still one of the most amazing things that Aotearoa has produced in a way our signature dance that now everyone imitates around the world well let's tell people how it came about um he was being harassed by one of the tribes um during one of these many skirmishes during this migration and this conquest for land and he was stuck in a kumara pit and this old this woman was sitting over him and uh, he hid there, and uh, that's where he wrote it, apparently. It saved his life. Kamate, kamate, kaora, kaora. A direct translation's a hard thing to do, but uh, kamate, death, death, I live, I live. You can look up the rest. But it was during this migration that it was written, and he remembered it, and it was passed on, and now it's uh, recited, performed, if you like, at um, sports grounds. But not only sports ground, like funerals and tangi, just absolutely an act of respect, isn't it? Well, it became very, very well known. Um, I'm not particularly sure how the other tribes he uh, fought off, murdered, murdered, murdered women and children, how, how fondly they remember Tarapuraha, but he was a feared and fearful man and uh, a very successful one as well. He had a lot of smarts. Exactly, and just like they never talked about Genghis Khan, the Russians refused to talk about him in their history. Well, there are a lot of people that mm. almost can't acknowledge Tarapraha as well here. Yeah. You know, the thing about Tarapraha, he came at that sort of nexus, if you like, of two areas of our history. He was said to have been a boy. He always said he was a boy when Captain James Cook came to New Zealand. He was probably born in the late 1760s, but he was about 40 when he did this. 
Hickey. So a man who stayed in his prime of his life for many, many decades. He was hard to slow down, but when he did, he just dropped from the scene. Mm. All right, so they suppose he's buried on Kapiti Island, Jared. Yeah, almost certainly. He was buried at a church ground near Okaki, but uh, almost certainly his tribe, the story goes, um, dug him up and reinterred him out there in a uh, family grave. All right, the story of Tarapurahar's migration, a fighting retreat, vicious, deadly, uh, but very successful, and he's a huge name in New Zealand history. Jared. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Graham. There goes another outsider tale from Jared Hindmarsh, and it goes straight into the Outsiders archive. There are so many amazing stories in there, and still more coming. Uh, from Jared, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and on the right hand side we keep a little column and it's got all these archives there, the Museum of Regrets, famous uh, museum in uh, Cumberland Street in Dunedin, that's part of the uh, uh, strange secret museums of New Zealand archive, there's the Shipwreck Tales archive, there's the 50 ships that changed the course of history archive, Strange Societies archive, that's ancient weird history, the Minoans and stuff, tons and tons of happy listening there uh, to avail yourself of at your leisure. So there you go. Uh, go and knock yourself out, basically. And a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. It is podcast hour by hour, the program. A little something from yesterday I found utterly fascinating. You know the Kofi tree? It's all big and yellow bloom, or about to be, uh, in a place very, very near you uh, at the moment because it's such a signifier of, of spring. But... Occasionally, people get a real knicker twist happening about it being poisonous. This yesterday, because uh, you may have missed it, it's there for the listening if you want to, um, but I'll play it a little bit for you now. Renowned bio, uh, biologist, yes he is, botanist to be more specific, Peter DeLang. Yeah, from time to time we have these weird, what, what I, I call kofi pogroms, where do-gooder people go in and chop down kofi trees because they're 100% lethal to children. Mm. But in fact, no, they're not. And the same people will very happily ignore the melia trees that are planted all down the streets, you know, the Persian lilac. But now we've gone the other end of the spectrum. We chop the kofi trees out because they're lethal and we plant things that are actually lethal in their place. I mean, if I had a dollar for every Japanese wax tree I saw in schools, and that is really lethal and some people just touching it is enough to make them break out into kind of psoriasis. And the other thing that is ironic is how many karaka trees will you find in school grounds? And that is poisonous. Mm. Go figure. <laughs> so my view is leave the kofi alone. Peter Lang from the story of our kofi trees that's available online. Just go look it up. The picture's obvious. It's a big yellow flower. Okay, um, I'm really sad to be losing Paul Castley from Media Stick, but he's got other stuff to do and... and... Thank you all very much for listening. I'll be back next Saturday, Sunday, 8 till midnight. 0800 844 747 is the number right now. 
We'll keep you company right through till sunrise. Happy springtime.